I think that that is so key and important of any of us when we reach out to to help anyone is is always stay centered in that presence of God, because sometimes what happens when we don't is we get in the way. Our ego ego gets in the way. It's all about us, about getting recognized, about being somebody, about about uh, being successful, effective, and all this. And it's not nothing has to do with that. You know, it has to do everything about simply letting God use your hands and your feet to be present to those that need to be recognized as people. Welcome to Protagonists of Change. I'm Max Lindblad, Campus Minister at the University of St. Thomas in Houston, Texas. Here today with Nicole Labadee, Director of Campus Ministry, and Darnell Miller, Catholic Outreach. We have an important show for you. We are talking with Sister Norma Pimentel, Executive Director of Catholic Charities in the Rio Grande Valley, and one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People of 2020, about her work serving immigrants at the U.S.-Mexico border. At first glance, a shoelace is nothing but a piece of string. A mild inconvenience, maybe. An extra step in your daily routine of getting ready. An annoyance when it gets loose spin day, flailing around your ankle, threatening a fall with each step. But maybe you tie tight knots that never come loose and slip on your shoes each morning without having to untie and retie them. Then you probably don't think about shoelaces much. So I'm asking you to ponder this for a minute with me, to think about everything they are. First, shoelaces are a sign of human ingenuity. Did you know that shoelaces were officially invented on March 27, 1790, when Englishman Harvey Kennedy took a patent out on them? Now, I know what you're thinking. Were shoelaces really invented that recently? And the answer is no. Shoelaces have clearly been used for thousands of years, but he was the first person to claim them, and somehow that's how bureaucracy works. He did, however, invent the aglet, that little piece of plastic that glows at the tip that keeps the string from fraying and makes it easier to tie up a shoe. So credit where credit's due. But the oldest shoe ever discovered dates back to 3500 BC. That's 3,500 years before Christ was born. And they included leather laces that passed through holes cut in the body of the shoe. Fun fact, these shoes have been named the Irony Ones. I mean, doesn't that sound like a Nike shoe named by Tinker Hatfield? It's so good. Jesus' sandals probably had laces. I mean, with all the walking he did, they must have. If you don't believe me, try walking a mile in thongs or slides and tell me how that goes. Second, shoes represent a milestone in your life. Think back to your childhood. Do you remember the first time that you tied your shoe up by yourself? Probably not. I mean, I don't. I just know it happened sometime before starting kindergarten. But that first time is important. For teachers and doctors, it is a sign that your fine motor skills have been developed that you're on track and learning how to do things with precision and accuracy. For your parents, it's probably a sense of relief that there's one less thing they need to do when caring for you. But for us, it's a sign of growth and accomplishment. It's the fruits of our labor. All that time we spent practicing our loop swooping pools or tying the bunny's ears together, it shows us that with hard work and perseverance, we can master just about anything. And it gives us the confidence to move on to learning more complicated and challenging things. Third, shoelaces can be a sign of hope. I know what you're thinking, whoa, 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 that's a leap. But hear me out. 
When Jose fled his hometown of Acohutlas, El Salvador, with his family to seek asylum in the U.S., he tied his shoes tight before beginning his nearly 2,500-kilometer journey. After weeks of walking through jungle, deserts, and mountains, through rain and blazing heat, unsure of the challenges that lie ahead, they reached the U.S. border in Reynosa, Mexico, and presented themselves to Border Patrol agents requesting asylum. The Border Patrol agents took them for processing, take down their names, their origin, and the reason for coming. And they take their shoelaces because they have deemed them deadly weapons. The very same laces that held in place the shoes that allowed them to traverse the difficult terrain in the first place are gone. Jose is sent back to Mexico to await his fate in a holding facility. As he exits the room, the heels of his now loose shoes slapping the ground with each step. The waiting can last anywhere from days to weeks to months. Little information is given throughout the process until one day Jose receives a call that he and his family will be taken in by the local Catholic charities. They board a van and are whisked away to a new facility where they are greeted with smiling faces and some much needed supplies. After a quick shower and a change of clothes, Jose takes a pack of shoelaces, restrings the shoes that have already taken him through so much and ties them tight, ready to begin a new journey into a new life. While laces mean little in our day to day, in the grand scheme, they mean so much more. These little pieces of string and rope, when given with love, mean tight shoes and hope. Back in 2014, I had the privilege to go in to a detention facility back when we were hearing that thousands and thousands of, of children were coming to our border and they were being processed by border patrol. And um, I asked to go in and, and visit this detention facility. And, and uh, it was the most difficult thing I have ever done in my life to walk into this detention facility, a processing facility that can only hold 300 people at one time because it simply just, uh, the moment people enter our country, they are processed and then they're released or taken to another facility, whether it's a detention facility for adults or in the case of children, they are sent to the Department of Refugee and Resettlement for them to proceed with the children mm. in the proper way. But in this case, what I saw were a lot of children, hundreds of them, all filling up the, the, the cells in that detention facility in great numbers, so packed that they barely had any space to sit down, much less lay down. And, and they were just there looking through this big glass window, all their tiny little faces just staring at us, all dirty and muddy and dried in their faces. They all look gray. Their little eyes just looking up with this look of, you know, like, uh, help me. And uh, I asked the officer, please, may I go inside and be with them? And they said, no, I'm sorry, uh, you can't. And I said, please, I'd like to pray with them. And they looked at each other and, and they uh, went ahead and said, okay. And so I actually walked into barely into the 
to that space where these hundreds of kids were in this cell and, and could barely get myself to the center of that space. And all those children around me looking up at me and with tears in their faces and practically pulling my dress and telling me, por favor, sácame de aquí. Please get me out of here. One little child telling me, I want to go with my mother. And uh, I, I, I couldn't do nothing but join them in crying with them and, and telling them, let us pray. And they did. Diosito, ayúdanos. And you can see here the echo of the children repeat after me and say, Diosito, God, please help us. It was so, so devastating to see all these children, little ones, not more than five, ten years old maybe, all in detention, not for one day, not for one week, but for weeks, in a situation that was not right for, for kids to be in this condition imploring to me, please get me out of here. Why? I just could not understand. I wish I could just take him out of there. It was so hard to see that. But it actually helped me ground myself to, to that human suffering of these children. And every time I, I get to relive that moment by sharing this story with, with others, it reconnects me to that reality that I have a job to do. Never to forget that it is our responsibility to be present and to be a voice and to speak up and to do something about injustice. It is wrong and it's immoral and we cannot let that happen again. So the voice that you're hearing today, you're probably wondering, who is this? Who's talking to us? And um, we have a very special guest here today with us. And this is Sor Sister Norma, who's been working at the border for several years now. And um, just hearing that story to open us up, I think just really shakes my heart and moves me to just imagine and put myself in that scene. And she lived that. And many of us have never lived that. And many of us have never encountered that. But here today, we're going to hear more from her. We're going to get to ask her questions and just hear more about the work that she's doing down at the border and hopefully be inspired to get involved and find ways to care for those at the borders like she is doing right now. So before we do any of that, though, I want to um, let Sister Norma introduce herself and tell, tell us who she is and what she's doing and everything. Well, thank you. Thank you. Because I am, um, I always say I'm actually here from the Rio Grande Valley, the border with Mexico, right in South Texas. I'm an immigrant. I, I actually came to these United States uh, when my mother was pregnant with me and I was in my mother's womb and my dad decided to come to the United States to follow his American dream. You know, he had great hopes as a, as a young father that here in the United States, he would have an opportunity to uh, work and to uh, 
help his family uh, have what they need to be okay. And and so this is how I I happened to be in the United States, you know. And so um, I grew up here in the Rio Grande Valley. It's a very unique space in the United States. It's the tip of of Texas and. Uh, it is neighbors with Mexico, so we have the good of two worlds. I grew up both in Mexico and the United States. We went back and forth uh, to on our daily life and uh, went to school here in the U.S. and would go spend my free time over the other side with my friends and families that were living on that side. And so it was a beautiful upbringing, uh, being able to be part of two cultures and, uh, <clears throat> and knowing English and Spanish as uh comfortably back and forth and so I because I live here and I chose to enter religious life uh, with the missionaries of Jesus after I graduated from college with a bachelor's of fine arts I'm an artist by 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 a gift that God gave me and uh, upon graduating uh, somehow God decided to had other plans for me uh, my thoughts were going off into the wonderful great world and doing something with my profession and uh, he made me see differently when I went to a prayer group and I ended up uh, joining the missionaries of Jesus. I, uh, my life changed completely because it's almost as if I fell in love with God and, and for, for the very first time in my life, I, he became everything for me and I wanted to follow him in every way possible. And so uh, being with the missionaries of Jesus, I was immediately uh, immersed in the whole uh, immigrant reality because the sisters were receiving immigrant families. Border Patrol was dropping them off at the convent because they didn't actually have back then a detention facility or anything, what to do with children and moms and things like that. So we they were part of our community. And since that day that I entered to today, uh, immigrants have been part of my life. My response to try to help and be part of a solution to help families struggling because they're displaced and they're here and they need our help. That has been my reality since then. Awesome. Thank you so much, sister. And um, that word missionary just always speaks with me. I, I was blessed to do a year of missionary work in Jamaica. So I know that fire and um, to have that fire to go out and serve those and uh, reach out to those, especially those in need can really move us, especially through all the work that we do. And um, one of the things, though, that I think that comes in the reality of like this work that you do is you start to see systems, start to see things in a different light than maybe you understood them originally. Um, and that's what I think definitely happens when you're down at the border is uh, the system of immigration and uh, how refugees are accepted into our country. And I don't think a lot of people understand that um, this is not just this like, oh, they cross the border and then they like enter to Catholic charities and all this. It's a very complicated system. And I would love for you, especially with all the work that you've done, to explain more of this, the systematic um, role or the systematic system of immigration here in the United States, if you could. Definitely. You know, <clears throat> it was all new for me as well. When in 2014, we, when I say Catholic Charities, I actually took the lead in, in a humanitarian response. And when I was doing that, I just did it because I heard that there was a lot of people at the bus station. They were immigrants. They were just there and they needed help. And so in my way there, I 
I I asked myself, Norma, think, think, what are you going to do? You know, there are people out there that need help. And I had no clue what to expect and what I was going to do. But I, at that point is when I, I came out with the brilliant idea of calling a priest that oversees the parish downtown. And I says, let me borrow your parish hall. And so he said, yes. <laughs> and after that, you know, it was like, okay, let's uh, call friends and ask them to bring pampers and milk and, and everything that people need, because obviously these families were dirty and, and crying and, and hungry and needed to change. And so everything started to happen from day one. And it was, the response was amazing. It was at that point that I started to become aware of what was actually happening in our country. All these thousands of people coming to the United States and entering our country and um, being processed by border patrol. As soon as they cross the border, they are processed by border patrol. And uh, the thing is that I started to understand better why they come, you know, and the fact that these families, these, so many children, we're here in our own backyards, in our own cities, and, and uh, trying to understand why would they do that? Why would they risk their lives and come so far and find themselves in these conditions? And so we get to hear their stories and understand story after story that these families are fleeing a, a very horrible, uh, fear for their lives, that people, gangs, and, and organized crime are completely uh, uh, after them and killing them and uh, not giving them any options as far as finding jobs or working and, and, and being safe. And so they just find no other reason but to just find a way to leave and risk their lives to encounter so much uh, in the, along the way in the stories they shared along the way. They find themselves in the US managing to cross the river that is very dangerous, but yet managing to enter. And then the Border Patrol apprehends them, process them, put his, and then release them. Release them because there were so many of them that they determine who enters our country and those that are criminals are put away and handled differently. But those that were families and children and not a threat in any way to the United States, they realized they were in the United States asking for protection, for safety, and they needed a different process. And so they were given permission to continue that process, immigration process, at their point of destination. They were going already somewhere in the United States where they had family, friends, or someone that they know. And they, at that point, Border Patrol would release them so that they could go to immigration in that city and continue that immigration process. They're, they call the immigration proceedings. And so, so, this is the process assistant, how it worked, you know? And uh, there wasn't really at the time at first, any space in a, in a detention facility to handle the number of people that were entering the country. So that's how what happened. And so as time proceeded and we started to see other measures being taken and the country uh, moving into a uh, the, this previous administration that they started to rather wanting to deter people from coming and saying, no, we must not receive them. We let's find a way to discourage them from coming. And so different measures were taken. And we heard about, about separating the, uh, the parents from their kids and, and, uh, and taking, prosecuting them. <clears throat> and all of this created a, a, a horrible feeling about how terrible it must be for 
for these children to be separated from their kid from their parents. And so measures like that were, were done. And uh, finally, um, the last measure taken was a policy that forced everybody who was entering the country asking for asylum to remain in Mexico as they continue that asylum proceedings. And so um, that to, do, to this day is still exists for over a year where people are kept in Mexico right across the border in cities like Matamoros uh, and uh, wait there for an indefinite time of uh, period of time until they can determine whether they have asylum in the US or not. And so unfortunately because of COVID, this has made them stay even longer because that whole process just was canceled and said, you know, until further notice, you will remain in Mexico until we can let you know whether you can proceed. And so this is where they are now. And they're hopeful that the process that will take place now with the new administration would be that their cases will be reopened and they can proceed to follow up a humane process of asylum. You know. Awesome, thank you so much. Um, and one of the things that I, if you could um, kind of explain more, because I think when you hear like, oh, they get sent back to Mexico, it's not like they go to a hotel. It's not like they go to like a um, resort or anything. What does the situation look like on in the Mexican side or Mexico side of the um, border? And like, wh what is the conditions that people are living in there? Yes, yeah, so, you know, the, the families when they were told, okay, sorry, you have to remain in Mexico. These are people that have not a single cent with them. They don't have money. They basically borrow money to be able to pay their trafficker to get them to the border. And so now they find themselves sort of stuck in a city that is not home, it's not their own. And, and they don't have any means of where they can go to a hotel or pay anybody to take care of them. So basically they were homeless people that are with um, mom and dad and, and their children and their babies just there uh, out in the open. And thanks to the generosity of so many groups in the US that reached out to help them they started to receive uh, those uh, tents that we use for camping, you know, for a weekend and uh, taking them food and water and, and resources so that they could be cared for in some way. And so, but these tents were, of course, you know, we normally would use them for a weekend, but they're using them now for a way over a year. And the conditions of those tents are very difficult. And especially because the, the weather, you, the sun and the water and the rain and, all these uh, elements uh, make it harder for the families. And so they, they, it has become a refugee camp now that they've been there for so long. And right along the river, you see the families and those tents uh, all one next to each other. So a sort of a community has developed of people from Central America, like Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador, and then people from uh, other places like Venezuela and Colombia, and maybe even Africa or you know uh, Mexico as well from the interior of Mexico. And so uh, uh, it's a community so diverse of so many countries, and yet they've become neighbors to one another for so many months. And so uh, you see them struggling and it's very difficult, but at the same time, they still celebrate life. They, we've had an opportunity to celebrate uh, baptism and uh, the sacraments of communion. And, and, and even one met a couple that came together married. And so we had a wedding as well. And so 
it's beautiful how they celebrate together and support each other as a community. And, and uh, but at the same time, it's it's difficult because of course living by in those conditions and the river being so close, it brings a lot of um, rats and snakes and uh, mosquitoes and and things like that. It makes it so difficult and. Um, especially when it rains it destroys the 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 little tents and there everything is wet and muddy and and it's diff, it's situations that are not easy but in the midst of all of that life continues and they're hopeful that maybe tomorrow things will change for them yeah and i think that word hope um just through my work down at the border and in Jamaica and just what you're talking about now, it's not about what we have and all these things that we need to have, to have hope and to have joy. It's almost when we have less, we're able to see like the, the greatness of God and the good things in our life. And I think um, those people uh, are witnesses of that. And I, and it just in this tragic, in this tragedy that's going on, especially, um, and I can only imagine with COVID going on, the conditions aren't, nearly as good um, as they need to be to keep people safe with a pandemic going on as well. But um, I think it goes back for me, it, it makes me think of our, our Catholic social teachings of like, every, everyone's made in the image and likeness of God, this human dignity that we're all, uh, we all have. And I think um, one thing when I was down at the border and I, and if you can bring more light to this and it kind of explain why, why this is happening. When I was down there, one of the things that I saw is everyone I was encountering, um, all these guests that were coming into Catholic charities, they were all missing their shoelaces. And I didn't really understand like why, but it always just stuck out to me. And the only time I ever saw a shoelace was when people were taking hypothermia blankets and were um, creating shoelaces out of them. And I would always ask like, what is going on? Like no one was able to give me a clear answer because I don't speak much Spanish at all. But um, if you could kind of bring to light uh, what is, what's going on with these shoelaces? And um, cause I think that's like the most basic human, one of the most basic human needs, you need shoelaces on your shoes, keep them on your feet. And we're even stripping those away from people. And I find it just a really powerful symbol of like, we even take the smallest thing like a shoelace away. Shoelace, you know, it's, it's true. I know it, it, it's something that we take for granted that sho sho uh, tennis shoes come with shoelaces and they're important. And if when you were at the respite center, you may have seen how children are running around without their shoelaces. And sure enough, it, they won't take long before they trip over their, their shoe because uh, they don't have any shoelaces. And, and so it's definitely uh, something that shows us how, how, uh, how we strip these families of everything. Of course, we strip them of their own dignity, you know, but the shoelace is very, very uh, symbolic to show how the fact that uh, these families, when they arrive and they're put in det and they get processed, one of the things that happens is that the, the detention facilities where they end up and to be processed are run by what run what operates and runs the federal prison. So these uh, facilities are run just as a federal prison. So all the measures that they take are measures that you would take in any federal prison. And one of the things is remove anything that could harm themselves, you know, like the belts and the shoelaces that they have. And so those are things that they strip them off, you know. And so uh, another thing is the fact that the temperature in the in the facilities are extremely cold. That's why they call them yeleras, you know, freezers, you know, because they, they are super cold, you know, and that's because they have to maintain the temperature at a certain level. And, and so it's uh, some of the things that 
they experience when they go through uh, the detention facilities and in processing them. And uh, I mean, they remain there maybe a couple of days and in some cases, uh, couple of months, you know, uh, depends on the, their case. And so those facilities are, are not um, social work places, they are prisons, you know, and they're managed that way because they're dealing with people that could be dangerous, you know, and so that's how they're, they're uh, managed. Thank you for sharing that. And um, one thing that I just want to like really hone in on is like, for everyone that's listening, like, our, um, Think about this, like put ourselves in those shoes. Like these are our brothers and sisters that some might be dangerous, but many of them are families coming across. Imagine us in the, on the other side of the table coming across and this is the way that we were to be treated. And um, it's hard for us, I think a lot of times to wrap our heads around, but I think it's just, um, just to imagine going into a situation like that where it's like a family that's fleeing from something and the way that we accept them is by stripping everything, putting them in a freezer and then, saying, oh, you're, and then being like, well, you're welcome to be here. It doesn't, it doesn't add up for um, the things that we call as, uh, oh, we care for all those, we want e uh, equality for all those people. And it's just how, I think it just brings the light of just like, how can we be in solidarity and walk with our brothers and sisters? And like, to be in true solidarity, you have to hear our brothers and sisters that are crossing the border and understand what's going on um, in their daily lives when they're coming across. So we can truly um, speak for justice and be a voice for them in this situation. But um, as you shared all these examples, I know you kept it pretty generic, but do you have any specific stories of families or individuals that have crossed over that have really struck with you that maybe would explain the system or explain what you've seen go on, um, it going on at the border and everything? You know, there's so many stories of uh, so many families that have crossed and and I mean, I, it's uh, every single one of them just touches your heart. And, 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 and just the fact that they're there before you, one of the things that I always ask from day one, when I started receiving the families at our shelter, at our, at our respite center, was uh, the very first question is, como estas? How are you? And just by asking that question, you saw them break into tears as because all for the very first time, in a very long time, they've encountered someone who actually cares to hear their story and to hear, recognize them as a person, you know? And they have a chance for the very first time to say, fue bien duro, it was so hard. And you, I've heard a man, a father, tell me that in, with tears in his eye, crying like a little child, telling me how difficult the journey was, how difficult it was to encounter all these obstacles along the way, walking and walking for days, you know, and nights and not having anything to eat and sleeping possibly in the brush, you know, where there's animals and possibly afraid that maybe that bull or that cow is gonna run over you or hurt you or harm your child. And, and uh, a father telling me, you know, when I was coming, I, I, we were stopped and we were going in the bus and they pulled us down these uh, groups of bad people and they put us in a stash house and they said, you have to give us money. If you don't give us money, we will kill your son, you know, and here's my little son. You know, he's not even nine years old and they're putting a, a gun to his head and, and they're actually firing the gun and, and I just 
cry thinking my son is dead and now and then I realized that he's still alive and I think to myself was it God that saved my child was it just the gun didn't work you know and this as he's telling the story you know you you see the father just in tears reliving that those moments of great fear and and eventually saying that thank god my family was able to send them some money and they let us go you know and so hearing those kind of stories and uh, or a dad that sits by next to the river bank and and looks at the united states and and tells me madre when i arrived here the very first day I was coming for my country. I managed to get myself to right here. I'm right here and I'm in Matamoros and I'm, I was standing right there looking at this wonderful country, the United States. And I found myself there not letting me in. And I had my wife and my little girl that was five years old. And I asked myself, what am I gonna do now? Here's a young dad, fearful for the life of his family looking at the United States with great hopes and yet at the same time with the great fear of what am I going to do now? What, how am I going to take care of my daughter and my wife? And, you know, this is a reality that people, families, parents and children are facing daily at our border here in the, in, uh, the United States just because we refuse to see them as refugees and not give them a fair chance to go through a process that can provide them with safety and protection. Thank you, sister. And um, yeah, it makes me think of uh, just my time when I was working at the border. Like one of the things that I remember is like, I didn't speak any Spanish, but even um, the language barrier, like there's ways to communicate with people and feel their pain and feel that suffering without having to speak the same language. And, um, and I definitely experienced that. And like, even in that, it's just like, there's a sense of, um, at the end of the day, like one of the things that happened to me is a young boy gave me Honduran money. I was like, I want you to keep this to remember me. And it's like, they just want to be heard and listened to. And, uh, in my wallet today, I still have that money. And it's just, uh, it always, it's like that sentimental, the like sacramentality of like, every time I see that I can, it brings me back to that, 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 uh, kid. And it just makes me think of, um, how important it is for us to just see every single person as a child of God and, um, and see the human dignity and know that like Christ is there and working within them. And I think, uh, what you're saying is all, you're speaking with saying like talking about God and sharing how like you're doing this work. And I think at the end of the day, faith is at the center of it for you. And I, and I'd love for you to just share a little bit more about like how faith grounds you and how your faith really moves you through this work that you do. And, um, and then maybe like where you find Christ through others or through the work that you're doing as well. Yes. You know, I, I definitely, my faith is what grounds me to who I am and what I do. It's at the core of who I am. It is my God, my faith in God, my time with God that I am able to stay connected to that reality, to that fact that it's not about me, nor my, it's about God sending me forth to 
to help these families to be a presence to them that will uh, bring God to them by the mere fact that recognizing that they're human beings, they're people and, and they're children of God and that they deserve to be heard and to be treated with dignity and respect. And I think that that is so key and important of any of us when we reach out to, to help anyone is, is always stay centered in that presence of God. Because sometimes what happens when we don't is we get in the way, our ego, ego gets in the way. It's all about us, about getting recognized, about being somebody, about, about uh, being successful, effective and all this. And it's not, nothing has to do with that. You know, it has to do everything about simply letting God use your hands and your feet to be present to those that need to be recognized as people. And just simply through your simple actions of caring and and uh, recognizing that they are important, you know, and just by the mere fact that you're present to them is all that matters. You know, you don't really have to do very much, but your presence with them acknowledges the fact that God is with us just by allowing ourselves to encounter each other and, uh, and, and let that presence of God uh, manifest itself in me and in them, you know, and uh, in whatever way, shape or form it needs to and wants to, you know, God is the one in charge. And so he won't be if we don't really uh, have, make time for him in our own pres present silent times, you know, we have to make time for God so that can, God can direct our lives, you know, and, and uh, he can be in charge. And so I, I think it cannot work any better if it doesn't, if it's not centered in faith. Yeah, absolutely. I know you're saying make time. It's like, how do you have time to do any of this? Like, how do you have time to pray? How do you have time? To well, definitely so, it, starts, it starts with the first thing in the day. I know the moment you open your eyes, you know, it has to be welcome. Hey, good morning, God, you know, good morning. Thank you for today. What do you have planned for me? You know, kind of, I, I think that's where it starts. You know, it starts not by grabbing your phone, but rather uh, making yourself aware of the fact that, you know, you know, he, you're, you're working for God. So it's got to start with that first acknowledgement. I love to start my day by going to mass in the morning, very early in the morning, uh, and uh, making that first first effort in my life, in my days to to connect with God. And I, the Eucharist is my way of, of grounding myself to really get the nourishment, the, the presence of God with me. And uh, that's very important. You know, COVID has not helped that because unfortunately the priest canceled the first mass in the, in the day, you know, <laughs> I don't know why I'm still trying to figure that one out, but, <laughs> but anyway, uh, uh, it's important for me that, mm. that the Eucharist is, 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 a, is this nourishment that we need to make sure that God is with us all the time, you know, and so it's a good way to start the day. And, um, but anyway, I always do is, is uh, during the day, God is always in dialogue. I'm always in dialogue with God. And uh, one of the things that I always do is, is um, I always say, I need you here with me right now, you know? Uh, so I, I, I need to acknowledge the fact that send me your, your army. I need it right here. You know, whether it's I'm talking to somebody or I'm dealing with something throughout the day, I always say, I need you here. And so he's there with me. And so I think that it's very important that, that we do that and, and find those 
quiet times in the day or night where we can spend time with him. Yeah, I love uh, I love that. Just like I need you here with me. Um, mm -hmm. I think it's like a great tip, especially for college students, because sometimes y'all can get busy and uh, are even just young adults with work or anything like that. And if we were to just offer up those times, those conversations that are hard or anything that we're not looking forward to or the things that we're joyful for, they'd be like, Lord. I need you here with me, or I want you here with me to celebrate this with me. And I think um, that's a great, I, I just love that. Just like, and it's easy. It's not like something you're not like cut out all this like time. It's like when you're in those situations, just invite the Lord into that. And um, I, and I can only imagine what the Lord will continue to do in our lives when we're able to just automatically, our first reaction instead of being like, let me, let me figure out how to do it is be like, Lord, I want you to figure out how to do this and use me as an instrument. So I think that'd be, um, that's really powerful. And I just, I, uh, I just love hearing the work that you're doing. And I can just imagine you in conversations with, uh, with people and just being like, Lord, I need you here right now. Like God come, come now. And, um, and I just, it's powerful to just imagine that. And so on that though, is like, you're talking about in those conversations and, and the stuff that you're doing, but what is like your day-to-day -day look like um, down at the border? And I guess in that day-to-day, -day, like how are you being a protagonist of change every day or in the moments that you're working? Um, if you could share. Yeah, well, my days are pretty full and sometimes I think, well, next week it'll slow down, but it doesn't. It just seems to be uh, very intense and days are long. And, you know, recent these days I've had somebody kind of shadow me this younger this lady who is uh who is uh, uh, doing a documentary and wants to capture a lot of what I do and and so she asks uh, now and then can I follow you today and so and just to um, one day I said okay but I start early and I end late <laughs> and she said that's okay and so sure enough we start out my day very early and and um when I arrive here at the at my office, she's here. She arrives as well, and and it's one interview after another through Zoom. You know, I have maybe two or three, whether I'm meeting with people in the community to organize and plan uh, different efforts that we're trying to do uh, to respond to the needs of our communities, or through uh, interviews from uh, talks that I give uh, with different groups or universities or. Uh, and then um, quickly then move on to go to Matamoros where I, I go visit the camp, you know, and the families there. And, and then uh, that particular day that this lady went with me, uh, we were actually going to some communities. Uh, I get invited a lot. Can you join us to, we're doing this in the community and we would love for you to join us and be part of it. And so I said, yes. And so we ended up going to a, uh, community that a fishermen that live close to the, in the Mexican side, uh, close to the, uh, the beach, the Gulf. And, uh, and we spend our day distributing food for them and then uh, making time to go eat with some of the families and share a meal and eventually make it back after a, a quite a lengthy day. And um, still making time to go visit my family uh, that is in, in a city we pass by and uh, make a special prayer to one of my uncles who was going to be going to a, the hospital to get some treatment because he, they discovered that he had cancer. And so making sure that the family was together and we could pray together with him and, and then to continue on to, 
to arrive to back to San Juan where I'm at. And, and, and for her, it was like, well, I'm sorry I, you had such a long day with me. And she said, no, no, that's okay. But my days are pretty full like that. And, and it's one after thing another that I'm always doing. And um, I think part of what I do and why I allow myself to get so involved with so many things is because uh, I believe that it's so important to be that agent of change, you know, uh, that uh, helps change the narrative, you know, the narrative that uh, everything is bad or that everyone is, is, uh, is, is doing wrong. You know, I think that we must believe in each other and, and allow ourselves to change that narrative to the goodness there is in all of us. And so I think by my participation and my giving of myself and my time allows others to see that that's how we come together, how that's how we become one community, one human family. And uh, we can change by doing good, by by revolutionizing tenderness, as our Holy Father says, you know, we must allow ourselves to, to care for the other in a very uh, good way, you know, and I think that if we can change that and promote goodness, I think we've accomplished a lot. Thank you. Yeah, no, that sounds like a busy day. <laughs> I can only imagine. I feel like my days are long. And then I hear that. And I'm like, whoa, that's quite a bit longer and a lot of moving around. I sit in an office and meet up with a lot of people, but not so much moving around from border to border and visiting family all the time. So, but that's really powerful. And I love that, uh, what you were saying at the end about change, being that agent of change and especially changing the narrative. And, um, and I, I, I want to ask you though, like, so for, a young adult like me and then either even students or people that are uh, working, how can we be take part of this narrative of change that you're talking about um, in regards to immigration or even just in the world, things that you see that uh, you'd love to see like change happen and how can we take part of that? Well, it starts by, by allowing yourself to see. You know, sometimes we are so distant from others and from realities that we sort of protect ourselves so we and, and we don't actually uh, get to see what's happening. And so giving ourselves a chance to actually reach, reach, uh, get close enough to see, you know, that means that you care about the other that you will find out who that other is, what their name is, what their story is, you know, and begin to be present to that to that reality, it starts with that because that from there you start to move to want to do something. What is within your capacity to do to bring change to that person or to that reality that may need you so that you can uh, bring change, you know? And you'll be amazed at how much you can do, you know? Uh, sometimes we limit ourselves from doing because we think, well, I don't have time or I don't have the means or I don't have the resources or I don't, and, and you'd be amazed at the powerful uh, um, powerhouse that you are, that we all are, you are, and in bringing change. It's all with that openness. It starts with opening your heart to care so that you can then therefore listen, you know, get close enough and, and listen. And there's where you start to find solutions and responses that make a difference, you know, and start to change lives, start to change systems. And, and it all starts with you wanting to 
care, you know? And so I think that that's, that's all that it takes, you know, and, and you will start to make uh, an impact in your community and in others. And so um, don't hold back. I always say, don't hold back from saying yes and uh, being yourself, you know? I always say young girls, young women need to believe in themselves uh, to be themselves because they have so much to offer, you know, we all do. And so this is our time. Um, don't hold back from being yourself. I always say, don't get, be afraid of getting tired doing good. It's always the right thing to do. Thank you. Yeah, they, um, just to say yes to things. I think that's something that our culture tells us, like say no to more things. And I think that, uh, that willingness to say yes and I love that message at the end. I know we talked a little bit uh, before about this like message to women to really take um, take responsibility and say yes, like don't be afraid to um, to go out there and take those take those risks and do those things because I think uh, the work that you're doing is a great example of a woman going out there and changing the world. And I know that's one of the things that you really wanted to emphasize. Um, do you have anything else you'd want to add on to that, or uh, before we wrap up here soon? I, I well, I, I wanted to just say that that um, in that same line about uh, believing in yourself, you know, I think that so many times we we things turn us off or things we're not worth it or we don't have the talents. Uh, somehow we grow up thinking that we we can never be like that other person that is doing wonderful things, and and I just want to disagree. I think we all have that potential. Because all you have to do is be yourself. You don't have to try to imitate or, or copy anybody. You just have to be you. What God will, what you have to do, God will tell you. You will see it before you. Just don't hold back. Just allow yourself to be that you who God is calling you, you know, and, uh, and, and you'll be amazed at, at what you will be accomplishing because it will be you who will be doing it not for no other reason other than because you believe in yourself and you believe in that presence of God in you that is calling you forward to make a difference in that person you have before you, in that uh, whatever it is that you know you must do. And so um, definitely give 100% to uh, caring for others uh, in a very gentle, good way. The way that we end the show um, generally is with asking what saint or we name a saint and we kind of go into depth and we call it, we call it name that or who's that saint. Um, but for today, I want to ask you specifically, is there a saint um, that inspires you or that really resonates with you, especially with the work that you do, or maybe with just prayer or anything like that? What saint really sticks out to you? You, you know, uh, <laughs> I, I honestly, um, saints for me are, are, I always think of some saint depending on what it is that that they're known for that can come to our rescue. Like for example, San Antonio is one that we will always turn to if we lost something, he will help us find it. And believe me, he does, you know. I just, San Antonio, San Antonio, ayúdame encontrar, you know, something I lost, I misplaced, you know, I can't find. I'll just turn to San Antonio and he will help me find it, you know. And so like him, there are others that will respond to any urgent need that I have because of something. And, and I will turn to that saint for that, you know, and, and, and I feel I find relief and comfort in the fact that I can always turn to a saint for 
for their protection, for their uh, guidance, for their immediate assistance that I, I desperately need. But, you know, for me, Jesus in my life is key to bring me, to center me, you know, and to, uh, I always turn to him. And I remember it, uh, um, my dear uh, mentor who passed away a couple of years ago, I looked up to and, uh, and before she passed away, she, uh, she had me kneel down before her and, and, uh, and tell me, she said, Norma, always keep him as at the center of your life. Stay close to him, turn to him and follow Jesus always, you know, let him be by your side all the time. And so it is Jesus that I, I continuously always turn to, uh, to keep me centered and moving forward. And so uh, that's my sense of strength in my life. Thank you so much. And I think this is a great way to wrap up this, uh, this part of the episode. And I just want to thank you again for your time with us. And it was great to hear uh, all the work that you're doing and, um, and I just look forward to seeing and hearing and finding ways to, uh, get involved with y'all. Cause I think uh, to be an agent of change, to change the narrative, I think this is at the end of the day where you're calling us all to do is help uh, help change the narrative about immigration or anything that's justice related. How can we do that? So thank well, you definitely so much. They need to come down and see, okay? I invite anyone here in that, please, you're welcome. Join us. Uh, we would definitely have to clear you from COVID, but, but you're welcome to come down. That's the best way. Uh, reach out to us and see how you can help. Uh, be happy to um, guide you in making sure you do that. Awesome. Thank you so much. If you made it this far, thank you for sticking with us. This whole project is a labor of love, but we want to hear from y'all. How can you be in solidarity with those that are immigrants and refugees? Let us know. Hit us up on social at CalCampusMen on Instagram and Facebook. Share with your friends, family, coworkers, classmates, that cutie in the bottom right square of your favorite class. To learn more about what we talked about today and how you as an individual can move into the realm of action, we have a resource list for you in our Instagram bio, at CalCampusMen. Additionally, we invite y'all to listen to our other episodes, which dive into racism, prayer, discernment, and whatever else we feel called to. You've been listening to Protagonists and Change. I'm Max Linville, and until next time, peace out.